Hi everyone, welcome back for another episode of EGOs and the MRCI podcast. Today I have two very special guests, uh, both from the University of Cincinnati. I have an assistant professor, Dr. Daniel Sturmer, and a PhD candidate, uh, Riza Ershadna. And they're both here today to talk to us about uh, different types of CCS reservoirs. So to start today, Riza, could you please give our audience an introduction about yourself? So could you give us a little bit about your career background, your current career goals, and any passions that you have? That can be within geology or outside of geology. Yeah, sure. Thank you, Dr. Kernan, and thank you for having me here today. As you mentioned, my name is Reza Shatnia, a PhD candidate in geology department of University of Cincinnati, working under supervision of Dr. Reza Sultanian. I got my bachelor and master, first master degree in petroleum engineering, and my second master and uh, in geology. And right now, I'm PhD student. For my PhD research, I use in general numerical simulation to figure out how different subsurface geological structure control the carbon dioxide migration in saline aquifers. To be more specific, my main focus is on carbon dioxide migration in fluvial type aquifers. Mm -hmm. Because as you may know, most of aquifers suitable for geological carbon storage show fluvial depositional structure. It is the main goal of my research and my passion for is the area or research area. Yeah, that's awesome. Thank you so much for being here today. And then Dan, could you also give our audience an introduction about yourself? So your career background, your current career goals and passions within or outside of geology? Uh, yeah, thank, thank you, Dr. Kernan, for uh, having me here as well. Uh, so... I, I do a lot of different things, which is, is, is what I'm happy doing. So mm -hmm. I, I really work at the kind of intersection of tectonics and sedimentation and structural geology, utilizing both uh, field observations and uh, geochemical methods and geophysics to understand how the earth has, uh, has deformed and how landscapes have responded to that deformation over over time. Mm -hmm. um, so I um, from Southern California originally, and uh, did undergrad in. Well, I started a, as a music major uh, at Cal State Fullerton in Southern California, mm -hmm. and then uh, got a degree in business, and then found geology in my senior year. So I stayed to get a geology degree at uh, Cal State. Fullerton, and then moved to University of Nevada, Reno uh, for my master's, which was focused on structural geology, and then my PhD, which was uh, more tectonics and sedimentation uh, and uh, stratigraphy. So after that, I worked at Shell uh, in, um, actually was an intern for a couple of years in uh, uh, working on issues related to carbon uh, storage and sequestration, uh, and then worked in the Gulf of Mexico Exploration group for three and a half years uh, mm -hmm. and then I uh, was laid off and ended up uh, a postdoc at UT for uh, University of Texas at Austin for mm -hmm. 
eight or nine months. Uh, and then I had actually interviewed for the job at, at Cincinnati right around the time I started at UT. And so uh, so now I'm uh, at Cincinnati and I've been here for uh, five and a half years. So that's yeah. um, my, my short path and um, passions. I, uh, I have two uh, kids who are uh, Ivy and Eliana, who are, are five and three, and they, uh, they're a lot of fun and mm -hmm. have a lot of energy. So <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I enjoy playing with them. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so much for that. So Riza, let's go to some of your PhD research, if you'd be willing to share it with us. Um, I had a brief look at uh, some of the publications that you are on, and one of them specifically, uh, you sp your cohort of authors and co-authors, they spoke about CCS modeling and heterogeneous fluvial red reservoirs. Could you tell our audience um, some of your research highlights or conclusions from that study? Yeah, of course. Thank you for asking. As you may know, once a given amount of carbon dioxide is injected into an aquifer, there are four different trapping mechanisms that control the storage, the carbon dioxide storage security. Mm -hmm. These four mechanisms are structural trapping, solubility trapping, residual trapping, and mineral However, some of these mechanisms are more secure than the others. For example, it is better to get more solubility-trapped carbon dioxide instead of structurally-trapped carbon dioxide, you know? Mm -hmm. And in our group, we use numerical simulation to figure out how the relationship between these four mechanisms is controlled by operational and geological conditions of the aquifer. For example, one of the questions we want to answer recently, and we answered that actually in one of our publications with Dr. Strummer included, was how volume proportion of high permeable fluvial uh, facies type affect the relationship between these mechanisms. Okay. Uh, to be more specific or clear, I mean, what would happen if we increase the volume proportion of high uh, by permeable uh, facies type from 10% to 20%. Okay. I mean, by changing the type of reserve, uh, aquifer or reservoir. Mm -hmm. And we found that by increasing the volume proportion, we can get more solubility trapping and less structurally trapped carbon dioxide. And it means it is better to inject the carbon dioxide into the aquifers with higher volume proportion of carbon dioxide, uh, of a fluvial pathway or fluvial facies type. For another uh, question that we want to answer was how the temperature affected uh, the temperature dependent parameters control the relationship between these uh, four mechanisms. For example, as you may know, in, uh, the injected carbon dioxide is usually colder than the aquifer temperature. And due to this temperature difference, all temperature-dependent properties would be affected, such as carbon dioxide solubility in aquifer. And it is very important to run our numerical simulation under non-isothermal conditions instead of isothermal conditions. Mm -hmm. And in another uh, work that we have with Dr. Strummer was to figure out how running the model under non-isothermal conditions would affect the result or relationship between these mentioned trapping mechanisms. And we found that if we, uh, if 
in a model, we run the simulation under isothermal condition. For example, the amount of solubility trapped carbon dioxide is overestimated by 1%. Maybe it's, it seems it's not that important to be considered, but when we extend this value to the large volume of injected carbon dioxide, it can lead to a misestimation of huge amount of carbon dioxide, you know? Oh. And it, we showed that how important it is to be considered in fluvial system. And for running our numerical simulation, we first validate always validate our models against experimental data and then use that validated model to uh, address the question that I mentioned before. For example, in our recent work, we first validated our numerical simulation against the experimental data that came from a Cranfield pilot project that was performed in Mississippi, United States in 2009 and 2010, and then tried to answer our question. Sure. Oh, that is so awesome. Yeah, I was actually wondering that um, if you are using uh, like modeling, how you're comparing it to like a case study or a pilot study. So that's great that you've actually compared it to experimental um, work. Do you see with your results um, a path forward? Like if you had uh, unlimited time and money, what would you propose to do next? Actually, the, one of the things that we could do is to extend our size of aquifer that we were working on. Mm -hmm. Because it uh, was a small portion of Cranfield site. Cranfield site by itself was a gigantic formation and it includes more than 16 million grid cells. Mm -hmm. And the aquifer that we picked from that includes only 1 million grid cells, you know? Mm -hmm. And because of the limitation in our numerical simulation, we couldn't run our mod that model. We couldn't run uh, that big model, you know. Yep. And if we had uh, enough, uh, maybe source of um, money and numerical model, of course, we would rather to run our model while uh, considering all that big. In, uh, formation of cramping site because when you extend the size of the uh, aquifer, of course, you may see other behavior for carbon dioxide in the long term. You know? mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, thank you for that. Now, Dan, shifting to your research, um, I reviewed some of your publications and um, you've put out some really interesting papers about CCS modeling and using the basalt uh, as a reservoir. Could you tell our audience um, more about some of your research highlights or conclusions about that? Sure. Uh, so uh, Reza mentioned uh, mineral trapping mm -hmm. and it, with injection of carbon dioxide into uh, mafic rocks. So these are, are volcanic or igneous rocks, so they're volcanic or plutonic rocks that are low in silica and high in iron and magnesium. Okay. And um, when you inject carbon dioxide or interact 
that those uh, some of those minerals, particularly the mineral olivine, mm -hmm. with carbon dioxide, uh, the silica gets replaced uh, by the carbonate, and you form iron and magnesium um, and calcium carbonates because mm -hmm. there's also calcium in some of the other minerals. So, sure. um, so the idea is that instead of the the carbon dioxide being stored as a gas, it actually forms minerals mm -hmm. that are then, you know, a little bit more stable than than uh, than the CO two being in the gas phase in 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 the ground. Mm -hmm. um, so I looked at uh, ten different basalts from Nevada, and used uh, what's called reaction path geochemical modeling to uh, model the interaction of those different basalts. So all, each of those basalts has, has a different geochemistry, so different proportions of iron and magnesium and calcium mm -hmm. and, and other things in it. And, um, and basically the way that reaction path, this geochemical modeling works is you put, uh, in the program, you put the, uh, you combine the the carbon dioxide with a uh, uh, fluid or with water with you know with salts and things in it and then with your minerals and it in the in the modeling program basically it lets that all sit in a box and react yep um, which is different than what Reza is working on which is actually letting that carbon dioxide and other fluids flow through a mm. model mm -hmm. um, so. Uh, so I did this modeling with both uh, in uh, reacting the carbon di or reacting the basalts with carbon dioxide and with uh, chemistries of, of uh, kind of a flue gas that might be coming off a coal-fired power plant. So okay. including uh, carbon dioxide and some proportion of sulfur dioxide and nitrogen. Uh, yeah, uh, nitrogen oxide. Mm -hmm. um, and the, I mean, the results were were generally positive. You do store the carbon in um, in about four or five different mineral types, so a, a calcium carbonate and a calcium magnesium carbonate and an iron carbonate and a magnesium carbonate. And um, and the we one of the things we varied was uh, temperature. So in general, the the hotter that you're running that reaction, both the faster that reaction goes and, and um, at to a certain point, the more carbon you will store. Um, if you ran that reaction above about 150 degrees C, the amount of carbon dropped off because one of the mineral phases that you're capturing carbon in uh, is, is no longer stable above about 150 degrees C. Mm -hmm. Groups who are actually doing kind of uh, injection studies into large uh, provinces of basalt. So one is a, a group up in Washington state who are injecting uh, carbon dioxide into basalt. And the other group is in Iceland. Mm -hmm. uh, and they're um, taking uh, CO2 coming out of a power plant and then injecting it into, uh, into basalt. That's great. Oh, gosh, it's so interesting. Um, so I have a couple of questions <laughs> um, to start <laughs> off with. So when I hear about stuff like this, like actually capturing uh, carbon dioxide, like in a crystal form, so in a carbonate, is there any potential where all of a sudden you're adding all this bulk rock volume or bulk mineral volume 
Could you potentially set up a micro seismicity by doing this just because you're, you know, you're changing effectively potentially the pore size or what you're, you're filling in. Is there any potential for that with this method? Yeah, there, there is. And that, um, there've been a couple of papers looking at that potential. Mm -hmm. Um, if, and so if you're injecting the, you're, you're exactly right. The, um, basically what ends up happening is the product minerals that you generate uh, take up more space than the uh, and fill up pore spaces. So yeah. that can uh, uh, that can result in in micro fracturing as you're if you're overpressuring the, the basalts for yeah. sure. So that that is definitely a concern. Um, the, a lot of the work that I was doing was assuming that you would uh, react the mafic rock in, in what's called an ex situ format, which basically means you mine and crush up the rock and then, and then react it, which has its own issues because then you, you know, if you do that, then you have a whole bunch of, of carbonate minerals and waste rock that you have to do something with. So we, we give some suggestions for, you know, you can use it as roadbed and, yeah. and other material, but, um, but that comes with its own issues. Yeah, for sure. Oh, that's, that's so interesting. So if you had a preference over which uh, type, so a saline uh, heterogeneous fluvial reservoir versus a basalt reservoir, what do you think would be uh, more successful or ultimately lead to better results? Or would it actually just be a combination of the two, depending on your location and what rock type you had to work with? Um, I can go first if yeah. that's all right. Yeah, sure, um, go for it. I, my preference, I think, would be, a, would be your last option, a mix of um, of what you have available. Um, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's, it's kind of how I feel about a lot of, of energy in general yeah. is, is having a, having a mix of, uh, of options, um, allows you to, um, I mean, it keeps costs down, mm -hmm. right? Cause if you're, if you're going with an all basalt model, then you're, you need to move that carbon dioxide that's generated at point sources to, where you have basalt. So, totally. so that would involve building pipelines and, you know, mm -hmm. so, and there's a lot more, at least on land, there's a lot more fluvial aquifer uh, potential than, than basalt. But having, having both of those options, I think is, is, is the best way to, um, and, and other options, you know, in hand soil recovery and other things like that is, is the best way to, um, to really secure as much carbon dioxide generated from point sources as possible. Yeah, absolutely. No, I totally agree with that. That's really great. Mm, I totally agree with them. Yeah. Uh, but if, if it is possible, absolutely it would be better if we have both of them at the same time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the reason is, as I mentioned, there are four tracking mechanisms. And out of that uh, four, the best one is uh, mineral tracking the most secular one is mineral tracking because when the injected carbon dioxide is trapped by through mineral trapping uh, it, it, there is no possibility for that to come to atmosphere in long long term you know mm -hmm. and in the basal formation we can easily get much more mineral tracking compared to fluvial aquifers aquifers specifically and if we inject carbon dioxide in an 
aquifer, a fluvial type aquifer, it may take more than 100 years to mm-hmm. get mineral trapping, you know. Mm-hmm. But in Basel, we won't uh, have uh, such issue. On other note, in fluvial aquifers, the carbon dioxide can migrate more easily compared to basalt because there are some high preferential flow, high permeable preferential flow pathways sure. in which the carbon dioxide can easily migrate. And the migration of carbon dioxide can enhance the amount of solubility of carbon dioxide. You know, it is mm-hmm. another uh, way for trapping. And in uh, in a reservoir in which we can have both of them, actually we can have both solubility trapping and mineral trapping at the same time. But if it is possible, absolutely it would be the best option for us. Absolutely. Awesome. Thank you so much for that. Thank you both for being here. It's been a pleasure talking to you. I really appreciate um, you sharing your your publication data and your research with our audience. Um, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you. It was awesome. Thanks for inviting us. Yep. Bye-bye. Bye. This podcast is sponsored by the Midwest Regional Carbon Initiative, which is a structured five-year program funded by the U.S. Department of Energy. It is co-led by Battelle and the Illinois State Geological Survey. The initiative works to connect science, technology, and research to advance CCUS acceptance and deployment in 20 states across the Midwest, Mid-Atlantic, and New England regions of the United States.